if you have his word, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open back up with me to Luke chapter 23 and 24 where we left off. So here's, here's the question. What does it mean to be redeemed? And why have we been redeemed? What does it mean to rede be redeemed and why have we been redeemed? Like we come here to the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ at the end of Luke chapter 24. And yet, there's still more of this book to go. Like we've reached the apex, the mountain peak of Scripture. So, so why is there more? Apparently, there is a reason behind redemption. There's another chapter to come in this story. And so what I want us to do tonight is to think about as the church around the world, throughout history, what does it mean for us to be in the company of the redeemed? What does that mean for who we are and, and for what we do? Why have we been redeemed? I want us to think about that generally and then bring those questions to bear specifically on the faith family called the Church at Brook Hills. Why have we been redeemed and why have we been joined in the company of the redeemed in this local church? And so you've got in your notes, I want us to, to hit with broad strokes the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Christ and the inauguration of the church and see the answers to those questions. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means we receive the grace of Christ. What happened here in Luke chapter 23 is the grace of Christ on display. It is deeper than just a man dying a cruel, torturous death. This is, this is grace that brings salvation. We receive the grace of Christ. Redemption is not something you do, something you receive, not something you earn or merit or attain. It's received, it's given to you. We are the company of the redeemed, not based on what we have done, but based on what he has done. And what I put in your notes there, just as a summary, is a few different theological words to remind us the gravity of what happens in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, when the Bible says Jesus breathed his last. This is the Son of God, God incarnate, the sinless Son of God. Pilate said it really, really well. In Luke 23, verse 22, he says, I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Preach it, Pilate. Yes, exactly. That's the thing that sets Jesus apart from anybody else. We have all sinned. The payment for sin is death. We all deserve death. He has no guilt in him, no sin, therefore he does not deserve death, and yet he dies in Luke 23, 46. If he is not paying the payment for his sin, then whose payment is he paying? First word, sacrifice. He is dying our death. The death we deserve, he is taking upon himself. It is what we have seen over and over again as we've been reading through the Bible this year. The blood of sacrifices, a necessary covering for people's sin. 
whether it's Exodus chapter 12, the Passover sacrifice, or Exodus chapter 24, sacrifice, the blood of the covenant, whether it's Leviticus chapter 16, sacrifice, and blood is sprinkled over the atonement cover. What we have here in Luke 23 is the sinless sacrifice, Jesus himself. He is our Passover lamb. His is the blood that seals the covenant. And it's his blood that provides an atonement, a covering for our sins. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says, He has done away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's died the death we deserve to die. Second, this is a great word to teach your two-year-old. Propitiation. Propitiation. He has endured our condemnation. Propitiation. Propitiation or propitiatory sacrifice is one who turns aside wrath, turns away wrath. That's what propitiation is. Sin arouses the holy fury, the holy justice, the holy wrath of God. As sinners, we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Jesus says we stand condemned in our sin in John chapter 3, verse 17. But then Romans 5, God, while we were still sinners, sent his son Christ to die for us. To take God's wrath, Romans 5, 12 says, upon himself so that we would be delivered from God's wrath, Romans 5, 1, so we would have peace with God. Romans 8, 1, so that there is now no condemnation for anyone who is in Christ Jesus. Condemnation gone. It's been poured out on Christ. Isaiah 53, we saw it a couple months ago. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to pour out condemnation of sin upon him instead of you and me. That makes propitiation a really, really, really good word. Sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation. He has suffered our separation. One gospel account shows Jesus on the cross saying, Father, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality is because of our sin, we are separated from God, infinitely, eternally separated from God in our sin. It's the picture in Genesis 3 in the beginning of the Bible, cast out of the presence of God, separated from God. And Jesus endures the separation we are due so that instead of being cast out, we might be invited in. Think about it. Sinners to the core welcomed into the presence of an infinitely holy God because Jesus has suffered our separation. We once were afraid of God, now we are friends of God. Once cast out, now invited in. Sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. He has paid our debt. This has been the primary theme as we've walked through this story since the beginning of this year. Chronicles of redemption, redemption, the debt of our sin too deep for us to pay. But God, Galatians 4 says, sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that through his death we might receive adoption as sons. We once were slaves to sin, now we are sons and daughters of God. All of that is what is happening when Luke 23 verse 46 says, he breathed his last. 
The hymn writer said it best. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Like, can you amen that? That's good news. This is, this is great news. It is the best news in all of history, in all the world. Jesus has died the death you deserve to die in. He has endured the condemnation that is intended for you from a holy God. He He has suffered our separation and he has paid our debt so that anyone in this room and anyone in all history who trusts in him, who turns from sin and trusts in him as Savior will will be reconciled to God, will have their sins covered, will be welcomed in to eternal life with God. That's what it means to be redeemed. So, Why? Why would God give such grace to redeem us? Leads to second picture in your notes. We are redeemed to behold the glory of Christ. So you get to chapter 24, and 12 short verses in to chapter 24, 12 short verses after Jesus has been buried, they cannot find his body. Ha! It's gone. Peter doesn't believe it. He goes and runs and have a look, has a look for himself. And then you get over to verse 36. Luke 24, verse 36. Like, just imagine this scene. Put yourself in these disciples' shoes. As they were talking about these things, verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said, had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and remarveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? (laughs) Like they're shocked. A man has come back from the dead, and all he wants is a simple meal. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Like you can just picture their jaws are still on the ground, their eyes still wide open. Like, is this a hallucination? Well, hallucinations don't eat. Is this a spirit? Well, spirits don't chow down. He is real. And he said to them, these are my words. And I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, 
Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And that's where Luke 24 ends. Now, hold your place here and turn me over to Acts chapter 1 because Luke writes a sequel. Part 2. And part 2 is called the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, also written by Luke. What I want to show you is that Luke picks up by recounting the same scene and elaborating on it. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to kind of go back and forth a little bit between Acts 1 and Luke 24. Acts chapter 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, book of Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is where it starts, right here. The whole next chapter of this story of redemption starts with this picture. You've got it in your notes. Don't miss this. The a people who have received the grace of Christ, beholding the glory of Christ. He is the risen Savior. He was dead. And by dead, we mean dead. Torture, killed on a cross, blood flowing, not breathing, wrapped in a tomb, stone put in front. Dead. And then he was alive. Not a lot of people have done that. He is the risen Savior. He conquered death. He is the exalted Lord. As if that were not enough, he ascends into heaven. Four times in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, verse 9, verse 11, actually twice in verse 11, and then in verse 22 later on, talks about how he was taken up. The Lord was taken up. Jesus taken up to the right hand of the Father, risen Savior, exalted Lord, and third, he is the coming King. Like, put yourself in these guys' shoes, these disciples, the range of thoughts and emotions. One day, you see 
Jesus crucified cruelly on a cross. A couple of days later, he's alive, hanging out with you, chatting and having a meal. And so they're, they're asking, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? Like, all right, this is, we got, this is a movement here. We got things on a roll. We've got dead, alive. And then, not long after, he rises into heaven. And I love, I love Acts chapter 1, verse 11. When this angel comes and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Well, why do you think we're standing looking into heaven? Like, we were having a conversation with a man, and all of a sudden, he skyrocketed into the air. And so, angel, that's why we're looking up. <laughs> because... Jesus just disappeared. So this must be a rhetorical question of some sort, an introduction. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, here's the promise, who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That promise drives the rest of this book. That promise that Jesus is coming back drives 10 of these 11 men to be martyred to die martyrs' deaths, proclaiming his greatness, looking forward to his coming. The only one who is not martyred is exiled to an island where he writes the last chapter in the Bible. And in that chapter, the words on the page, he says, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. They're longing for the coming king. What I want you to see is that it's this vision of the glory of Christ, risen Savior, exalted Lord, coming King, that drives the church from this point on, from age to age, generation to generation. It's this vision that drives passion for the kingdom. It's fueled by passion for the King. Company of the redeemed. What does it mean to be a part of the company of the redeemed? We love the king and we honor the king and we glorify the king. And we give our lives for the king and for the advancement of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we are not just playing games here. We don't just come and sit in a chair once a week and give token adherence or songs to Christ, token time to Christ. No, he's worthy of our plans and dreams and ambitions and hopes, our possessions and homes, everything we have, everything we are. We want this king to be exalted. We want his kingdom to be advanced. This consumes us. This drives us more than making the next dollar or getting the next promotion or having a nice job or a comfortable life. Leave it all if necessary. We will do whatever it takes to honor our king. That's what it means to be a part of the company of the redeemed. That the prayer, constant prayer on our lips is let your kingdom come. In my life, in my death, let your kingdom come. So, that begs the question, how will his kingdom come? I am glad you asked. Third, Reason for redemption here. We receive the grace of Christ. We behold the glory of Christ. And we proclaim the gospel of Christ. We are redeemed to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Let me show this to you. End of Luke 24. So we're going to come back to Acts 1 in just a second. End of Luke 24. I want you to look with me at verse 46. 
Well, we, re- we read it just a second ago. When Jesus said to them, Luke 24, 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, pay attention close. Verse 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be what? And this is the audience participation part of our program. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed or preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So circle proclaim there, underline, put a box around, star around, proclaimed. Then verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, proclaimers of these things. You testify to these things. So circle witnesses or underline or box it or pink highlighted or something. Then you get over to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and it's the same picture. Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my what? Witnesses. Circle it, underline it, mark it there. You'll be witnesses. This is This is the reason for redemption. Receive the grace of Christ. Behold the glory of Christ. Spirit of God will come upon you, Jesus says, and you will proclaim. You will testify. You will witness to these things. This is the reason for redemption. We are are washed of sins so that we might witness to the reality of Jesus. His death. Resurrection. We we are delivered to declare. We are saved to speak. That's why we've been redeemed. So that we might speak. Now, we miss this if we're not careful. In this word witness, we we say things today like, I witness with my life. Well, it sounds good. And, And certainly we need to live lives that are good and good deeds, Matthew 5, 16, that will glorify God in heaven. One, one saint of old said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And it sounds sweet and, and cozy until we realize in order to preach the gospel, one must preach. In order to witness, one must speak. Jesus did not say the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will live nice lives and be good, decent people. It's not what he said. Now, hopefully that's implied. If Christ is living in you, that's reality. But you will be a witness. A witness goes to a stand, not to sit mute, but to say something. You will proclaim the gospel. These men who heard these words on that day did not lose their lives. John was not exiled to Patmos because they went around smiling and doing kind things. You don't get killed for doing kind things. You get killed in the first century for preaching, for telling people about Christ. And the same thing's true in the 21st century. I, I got to email this week from one of our contacts in Central Asia. And he told me about a brother named Syed, Syed Masa in Afghanistan who a few months ago was arrested by the Afghan secret police. 
The only crime that Syed has been charged with is conversion to Christianity. And the reason I want to share this especially today is because he is going, maybe even by now, has gone to trial today. Are we worship in this room and the odds are contact said that he will be sentenced to death Syed is 45 he has a wife and six children the oldest of whom is disabled Syed himself is an amputee with a prosthetic leg and over these last months he has been repeatedly tortured and abused in the prison for following Christ Syed is, is not in prison because he is a nice person. Although I'm sure that is the case in our brother's life. He is in prison because he has verbally confessed to following Christ. He has done what men and women, brothers and sisters, have done throughout history in the face of death. They have proclaimed the gospel. So let us not be so foolish as to claim in a free country that we witness with our lives when our brothers and sisters around the world are dying to witness with their mouths. Witness necessarily involves proclamation. And this is why the Spirit comes to us, so that we would be proclaimers. Another phrase we often use, we say, well, I witness when the Holy Spirit leads me. And again, there's a grain of truth to that. Well, yes, of course, we all want to be led by the Holy Spirit, but here's the reality. The Spirit will come upon us for one purpose, so that we'll be witnesses. So, I want to free us up tonight for every follower of Christ in this room with the Spirit of Christ in you. You can now consider yourselves led like you, this frees us up. We don't have to wait for some like tingly feeling to go down our spine and some weird circumstance to come about and think, I guess this means the Spirit's leading me to share the gospel. No, like if you are breathing, you are led by the Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel of Christ. That's what he's in us for. And that's what happens. You get over to Acts chapter 2. So follow this. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to smile. No! They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak. Spirit, speak. That's why the Spirit comes. So they will speak. And other tongues of the Spirit gave them utterance. They start preaching. Verse 14, Peter stands up and he doesn't just smile. He speaks. This is what the Spirit will come to do. To enable us to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Follow this in your notes. In the power of Jesus' presence. This is exactly what Jesus had promised. In Luke 24, when he told these guys, I love this. In Luke 24, when he said, whatever you do, don't leave Jerusalem. Like stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Translated, the last thing Jesus wants is these disciples let loose in the world on their own. Like they will botch this thing up. They need to wait. We don't need Peter going and just going out on his own. We need him with the Holy Spirit and all these other guys. And that's what happens. They wait and the Spirit comes down. They start speaking in all these other languages and 
Everybody around him thinks they're drunk. And Peter stands up. He's like, it's only 9 in the morning. We're not drunk. And, and then it's Peter. Think about it. It's Peter who's preaching. This is the guy who days before was afraid to say he even knew Christ. He denied knowledge of Christ. Friendship with Christ. So this is the guy that either says the wrong thing or says nothing. And now he's standing up preaching the first Christian sermon. What's the difference between timid Peter and bold Peter? Spirit of God. It's the only difference. It's the only thing that's changed from that point to this point. The Spirit of God is on Peter. And this is, this is what Jesus had promised. He is with us. He said, make disciples of all nations. I am with you always to the very end of the age. You, you do not go out on your own proclaiming the gospel. This is not a solo deal. I am with you. Not only is he with us, he dwells in us. John, John 14, Jesus is talking about how the Spirit's going to come upon his disciples. And he says, you're going to do even greater things than I've done. What an astounding statement. How is that possible that we are going to do greater things than Jesus? Jesus did a lot of great things. Miracles. People who were blind, seeing, who were dead, coming to life. He says, you'll do even greater things than these. How is that possible? Well, what Jesus is saying in John 14 is that it's not just going to be the fullness of the Spirit on one man, but on all of my people. And this is the beauty of what happens here in Acts chapter 2. You get down to verse 17 or verse 16 in Peter's sermon, and the Bible says, Peter says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he begins to quote from the book of Joel, verse 17 to 21. You probably have a little note at the very beginning of verse 17 or at the end of verse 21 in your Bible that says where he's quoting from. So kind of look for that note and see, okay? Peter's quoting from Joel chapter what? Chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. So let's do a little sermon evaluation of Peter. And let's see how he did on his Old Testament quotation. So hold your place here in Acts 2. We've got to compare here. Hold your place in Acts 2 and turn me over to Joel chapter 2. Let's, let's compare Joel 2, 28 through 32 and Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 21. And let's, let's see how Peter did in his first attempt at preaching the gospel. Joel chapter 2, we'll start with Joel and just kind of go phrase by phrase and compare with what Peter said. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. This is the prophecy of Joel. We, we looked at this uh, a couple months ago. Joel 2, 28 says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Okay, let's pause. What does Peter say? Verse 17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Pretty close, maybe a little nervous, missed a couple words at the beginning, but pretty much the same. Okay, come back to Joel 2, 28. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Peter, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. It's the same. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. So he swaps those around, but basically the same thing. He's doing all right until you get to verse 29 in Joel chapter 2. Even on the male servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, period. Peter, 
Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Wait a minute, those four words, do you see them back in Joel chapter 2? No. Joel starts going on to the next verse. I'll show wonders just as we see next in verse 19 in chapter 2 of Acts. Peter adds four words. What, sh what shall we conclude then? Did Peter just blow it? First Christian sermon. He misquotes the Old Testament, and it is recorded for us for centuries to see his blunder. Well, I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think this is very important here. When it says they shall prophesy, not in the Old Testament account in Joel, is in the New Testament account in Acts chapter two. What's the difference between Joel two and Acts two? Think about it with me. In Joel two. Were a lot of people prophets or only a few people prophets? Old Testament. A lot of people or a few people? Just a few people, right? Joel, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Select people that God called out to speak on his behalf, to bring his word to people. You get to Acts chapter 2. And Peter says, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and... Then you get down to verse 18, it says, he adds, and they shall prophesy. Acts chapter 2. A lot of people are just a few people prophesying here. A lot of people. In fact, all of them who have trusted in Christ, the Spirit of Christ on them, and they're all speaking. And so here's a huge difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament, select people, select individuals with the Spirit of God coming upon them to speak words for God. New Testament, every single follower of Christ having the Spirit of God poured out on them to speak for God. Do you realize what this means? To every follower of Christ in this room, you are a prophet. Now what does that mean? Like put on some sackcloth and ashes, get a big orange neon cross and go out in the streets and just let them have it? No, like what did a prophet do? One thing, a prophet had the privilege and responsibility to speak for God. And the beauty is what was reserved for only a couple of people, a few people in the Old Testament, is granted to every single follower of Christ in this room that you can go out into the place where you work this week, the place where you live this week, the neighborhood, the people you meet, and you have the Spirit of God in you and the authority to speak for God, to go and tell people that he has sent his son to die on the cross for their sins. He's risen from the grave and ascended into heaven and he deserves their worship and he desires their salvation. You can speak that to anybody this week and you have the authority of God to do so and the spirit of God on you to do so, the power of Jesus' presence in you to do that. Oh, God, help us not to miss this. We have this way of thinking, even in the church where we think, only a few people do the preaching and speaking, so we need to bring people to hear them. We set up a communicator, charismatic speaker, whatever it is. We need to show them on video or hologram. Just make sure it's a good communicator in front of people so they can do the work. No, the beauty is every single follower of Christ in this room, you have the Spirit of God in you. And he has enabled every single one of us to go out into this city this week and to the ends of the earth speaking on his behalf. 
So let's not relegate this to one person or think we're going to be dependent on a few people over here to do that. No, we all are playing in this game. Nobody on the sidelines here. He's with us. He dwells in us. We're not going to get through this. All right. Keep moving fast. He enables our obedience. Oh, we don't have time to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 36 and chapter 37. This has been prophesied. I'll put my spirit in you. He will move you to obey me, give you life. And he empowers our proclamation. As we announce, God awakens. You announce good news and God awakens hearts. You get to the end of Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2 and they don't, they don't respond and say, what wonderful rhetorical skill what an orator in Peter. No, it says they were cut to the heart. Something happened on the inside of them when the gospel was proclaimed. And it's what happens when we, when we preach, when we proclaim the gospel. I was, when I was in Southeast Asia a couple of weeks ago, and we had gathered together with a, a small group in this largest unevangelized island on the earth one night. And, and there were some people that had been brought there that did not know Christ, had not trusted in Christ. And they began to share. And to be honest, it just wasn't going well. Like I didn't think. I mean, it just definitely wasn't the A game. And, and it felt like I wasn't connecting. And I wasn't sure if anything was being driven home. But it shared the gospel. And, and in that gathering, there were three people who turned and trusted in Christ as their Savior. And I was, I was reminded, it's just, this thing's not dependent on my expertise, my ability to connect, your ability to connect and say the right things in the right way. Like you speak this gospel and there is supernatural power at work in people's hearts and they're awakened. And it's not, it's designed in a way so that it's, our weakness on display and his glory that's made known. This is really good news. Like most all of us, I think if we're honest, would say when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Christ, we are timid and hesitant and stutter thinking through how. But the reality is it's not dependent on our skill or rhetoric or oratory or convincing or it is dependent on this gospel's good for 2,000 years it has been proclaimed and people have had their hearts awakened you and I have had our hearts awakened not because of rhetorical skill but because God's sovereign grace and the operation of his spirit and it happens when we speak so let's speak and he'll empower our proclamation Keep going. In the power of Jesus' presence, we proclaim the gospel of Christ. In the light of Jesus' purpose, this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to make us, we're, we're worshipers. We're not going to have time to s spend here. Our lives are being conformed to the worship of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. As we behold the glory of Christ, the Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ. So that our lives are flowing in worship to God. And as we are worshipers, we are witnesses. And and worship leads to witness. Worship fuels witness. We see his glory and we tell people of his glory. When you behold greatness, you declare greatness. We proclaim the gospel in light of Jesus' purpose and in obedience to Jesus' plan. From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
This is what we've seen from the very beginning of Scripture. Old Testament, God's blessing was promised for all nations. You remember Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, all these languages, all these peoples scattering. And God takes Abraham, an idolater from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to pour out my grace upon you. And the result would be, was going to be, you're going to be a blessing to all peoples, and you're going to show my grace to all these peoples. He promised it. God's blessing promise for all nations in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now, New Testament, God's gospel preached to all nations. These nations gathered together here in Acts chapter 2, all hearing the gospel in their own language. And Jesus saying, this gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, sometimes is used almost as kind of a evangelistic strategy, so to speak, for a church. Like, okay, Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That means we need to reach Birmingham and Alabama and North America and then the ends of the earth. But that's it's actually not what the text is saying because the text is talking about a specific time and place. The gospel starts in Jerusalem. And it goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Acts 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Then from Samaria to the ends of the earth. Romans, or Acts chapter 28, Paul's in Rome preaching the gospel from the center of the ends of the earth. And so this is the picture of the gospel spreading. And you know where Birmingham is? Ends of the earth. Praise God. By His grace, people have not stopped proclaiming the gospel all the way to Birmingham, Alabama. And, and every single one of us has heard it because people have not stopped proclaiming it to more and more peoples. And the reality is the ends of the earth are still on the horizon. And there's talked about last week, 6,000 plus people groups who still haven't heard it. That's, that's where we've got to get the gospel to. So from Birmingham, yes, but we are still going after the ends of the earth in obedience to Jesus' plan. That's why we've been redeemed. Why are you still here? Why am I still here on this earth to fill a seat on Sunday? No. To coast through life as normal, business as usual? No. We, we are here redeemed for a reason. To proclaim the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth. That, that is what our lives are intended to count for. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, my life is of no value except for one thing. One thing that my life has value for. He said it is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's what our lives count for. And yet, yet we are, we are all tempted to neglect that one thing. To do all kinds of other things, even good things, and miss the one thing. Testify to the gospel, the grace of God. So, so how can we make sure not to miss the one thing? As the church at Brook Hills, surrounded by people in Birmingham in need of the gospel, people in all nations in need of the gospel, we have the grace of Christ and we behold the glory of Christ. So how will we proclaim the gospel of Christ? Well, in 2010, we talked about the radical experiment. And have been walking through the radical experiment, basically us saying as a church, we don't want to waste our lives and we don't want to waste our church just coasting. Like We want to risk it all to make this gospel known and see the 
advancement of the gospel and the accomplishment of the Great Commission, no matter what it takes. And so, so we've been praying, five components of the radical experiment, praying for the entire world and being on our faces, on our knees, on behalf of needs around the world. And reading through the entire word and walking through. We want to know God in Scripture. And this is where the power is found. And sacrificing our money for a specific purpose, individually and in our families. Saying, how, how can we stop the constant quest for more and more and more and more, bigger and better in our lives and in this culture? And say, no, I don't need more and more stuff. Like, I need to get rid of stuff and give away for the glory of Christ. A world of urgent spiritual and physical need and spending our time forth in another context. And over a thousand folks from our faith family this year going into other contexts outside of Birmingham proclaiming the gospel and doing it all fifth in the context of multiplying community as a church, not lone rangers, but doing this together. And so we called that the radical experiment this last year. So the question is, all right, we're coming to the end of 2010. So what next? What is what's 2011? And this, this is where I, I want to put before you this phrase. 2011. Maybe we call this the new normal. I.e., we, we can't turn back. And go back to business as usual. We, we see in Scripture that Jesus demands and deserves total abandonment and radical obedience. And the reality is, radical is normal for anyone who follows this Savior. It only makes sense to give everything in our lives and in our pocketbooks and our plans and our dreams toward advancing His kingdom. Elizabeth Elliot, the beginning of Jim Elliot's biography, her husband who died proclaiming the gospel to Indians in South America. She wrote these words. Jim's aim was to know God and his course was obedience. His end was what some would call an extraordinary death. He and the other men with whom he died were hailed as heroes. I do not approve, nor would they have approved. Is the distinction between living for Christ and dying for him after all so great? Is not the second the logical conclusion of the first? To live for God is to die daily, as the Apostle Paul put it. It is to lose everything that we may gain Christ. Elizabeth Elliot says, he's looked at as extraordinary, but he would not think so, nor do I think so. This is what is ordinary for anyone who follows this Christ. And so, in 2011 and 2012 and 2013... My prayer is that increasingly normal would involve radical praying. This is where it all starts. This is where it all starts. On our faces before God, apart from Him, we can do nothing. We would be fools. To think that with our ingenuity and our resources and all our stuff that we have, that we can really make a dent in the picture of urgent spiritual and physical need in the world for the glory of Christ. The reality is, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
But with Christ, we can do more in the next 100 days under the power of the Holy Spirit of God than we can in the next 100 years in our own power. And when we believe that, we'll be on our faces praying, praying daily. I want to encourage. There's a whole new edition of Operation World out now. I want to continue to put that before us as a faith family, as a resource. I want to even serve and help, help provide some, some tools to, to use Operation World. It, it can be a daunting book. And there's so much. And even online, there's so many needs in the world. And just in case you're kind of playing catch up here, Operation World is, a, is, is basically a, a book. And it's all free online as well that, that walks through over the course of the year every country in the world with prayer needs and and. No book outside the Bible has, more, has had more of an effect on my prayer life than that book, just exposing me and my heart and us and our heart to what God is doing in the world. So we're going to continue to pray, and then weekly prayer emphases that we are going to start in January to really focus on specific ways we can be praying for small groups and, and trips that people are taking and other things that are going on within our faith family week after week after week. So we're calling out to God on each other's behalf. And then, and then quarterly prayer and fasting celebrations. I had somebody ask me uh, after this last one last week, like they said, are we going to do this every month? And I said, we're not doing it every month. Like four times a year, four days a year we're not eating. Like we can do this. And, and, and remember, remember when the first time we did this, we had some brothers and sisters who were here from, Africa, from Kenya, and I was having lunch the next day with them breaking the fast, and I, they were asking questions about our fasting, and I said, well, do you guys fast? And things got really quiet around the table, and finally one of them spoke up and said, well, in our church, we, we start every year with a month-long fast. So we're not, we're like so not radical on this one. So, but we are. We're going to press in and pray. We want to be serious about seeking God's face, radical praying, radical studying Walking through the Word individually. Now, we've been reading through the, the Bible chronologically this year. Pretty tough to top that, that picture. What we're going to do this next year, though, is, is and, and obviously feel free to read through the Bible um, in this faith family by all means. But what we're going to do is we're going to have individual Bible reading that we serve one another with that gives maybe some more time for some meditation and reflection and and a little bit deeper study and memorization even in the context of walking through the Word individually. Then as families and small groups, we're going to continue every week serving one another with a family worship guide that helps every head of household in this room lead your family in worship. So this is not just something that happens when we all gather together, but it happens in the context of our homes and as small groups walking through a small group discussion guide. Then together when we come together, having all that tie in to what we're studying. So we're going to radical studying, radical giving, radical giving. We cannot rest from the war with materialism in our hearts. As soon as we begin to sit back and coast, we will lose that war. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to constantly evaluate where our treasure is and where our hearts are. And in our individual budgets and our families say, how can we, how can we cap it off and stop getting more and spending more on this? And how can we save and spend as much as we can for the glory of Christ and make sacrifices for the spread of the gospel? And then in our church budget, the same thing. In a few weeks, we'll... 
put the church budget before our faith family, and we're, we're crystallizing, finalizing that right now, so you can pray for that process, but trying to say, okay, how can we continue to free up in our budget, sacrifice less stuff for ourselves, more stuff for the glory of Christ in the, in the world. And then there's some other creative things that the elders and we're praying through about how we can put radical giving into practice, but that we'll have to wait for another day. Radical going, going here, yes, here. Start with going here. All of us going here. So we're not neglecting Birmingham and no way neglecting Birmingham. Like 98% of our time spending here is what we talk about every year at this time. And then challenging one another. Is there a week two, maybe three, but even just a week or a few days when you can go into some context outside of Birmingham proclaiming the gospel. Maybe near Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, coast, who knows where, or maybe far, maybe India or Southeast Asia and Africa. There's, there are outside in the lobby already scores of possibilities listed there for you to pray through and think through, plan for. Instead of Christmas gifts this year to say to people, will you, will you help me go to Africa instead of getting a, a, a yet another tie? So and anyway, not, there's nothing bad ties, but just maybe, maybe we could, yeah, anyway. So going short term, looking for opportunities, and then midterm. Now this is where Opportunities are growing, spending two months to two years spreading the gospel outside of Birmingham. So, so there's so many possibilities here. Summer, three months, six months, year, two years. Like I want to challenge every single high school student in this faith family to look toward the possibility at the end of your senior year, spending three months, six months, a year, two years. This is the total official Mormonization of the church at Brook Hills. We're going, but we're going with like the real gospel. We're going to go, we're going to give our lives, and then in college, take, take a semester, take a summer, take a year, take two years in college. When you graduate college, take a semester, summer, year, two years. So all kinds of opportunities, but not just midterm opportunities for the young. What about, what about semi-retired, retired brothers and sisters in this faith family? Do you have a month or two or three or six or a year or two that you could, you could go? But why not? Why not? Are, are we willing to put put comforts and excuses behind. I'm not saying that there aren't some valid reasons why some cannot go. I don't hear me saying that, but, but oh, what it would be like for this retirement thing that a lot of the world knows nothing of, for us to use this blessing that God has given to us in this context for the spread of his gospel instead of, instead of just staying where the gospel is already prevalent. And then long term, some people deciding in the days to come to spend 2% here and 98% somewhere else. And spending over two years spreading the gospel outside of Birmingham. We're in the coming months going to send a church planning team to North Africa, to the Arundo people group, to East Asia, to Hawaii people group. We're going to send church planning teams in North America, the Midwest and Northwest, and others to come. And so many different possibilities that are out there. You know, we partner together with... Uh, with the International Mission Board, Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and basically an incredible partner for us, with us, in going to unreached people groups. But the reality is, current financial levels of the International Mission Board allow for about 5,000 
missionaries, because all of them are fully supported, about 5,000 missionaries overseas that are supported through the International Mission Board. What, what I want us to dream about, though, is what happens when somebody doesn't have to necessarily raise full support in order to go? What happens when a businessman can get a job in the Middle East just like he could get a job here, or a teacher can teach in Asia just like they could teach here, and we start to look at creative ways where we can go into other contexts and live in other contexts and live as disciple makers who are making the gospel known on the front lines in places going where places where many traditional missionaries cannot even go. When we begin to think like this, like we can blow the lid off that 5,000. We're talking many more thousands can go. It's one, one couple in our faith family, businessmen and, and a teacher, They're married, and they say, we can do business and teach in Asia just like we can here. They don't know the gospel in this part of Asia, so let's move and teach and do business there. So are we willing to open up our lives and say we want, them, we want to spend them for your name's sake and look at creative ways to go? Let's blow the lid off this thing. Radical going and radical disciple making. This is the key. This is the key where it all comes to a head. And we're going to talk some about this next year, specifically in the book of Acts. But this is the goal. Every small group in the church making disciples. Not just having Bible study, not just having get-togethers, making disciples, experiencing the care of biblical community, sharing life with one another, and loving one another, and serving one another, and walking together, and then expanding the church through biblical mission, leading people to Christ. That's the, that's the purpose of our community. We, it's the purpose of the Spirit in us. Like We need to ask the question all across this room, well, some people might, well, first of all, are you in a small group? If not, then refuse anonymity any longer. Commit your life to some other people to grow with them. They need you. You need them. You say, well, I've tried, and my small group just, it's, it's, it's not good. It doesn't work well. The reason it doesn't work well is because you're in it. <laughs> and, and you're a sinner, and everybody else in there is sinners. And when we share life together, it's, it's a mess. But it's worth it. Jesus died for the kind of community that was brought about in this picture. So I'm, I'm, I'm a cause of bad small group too. Like that, I'm not just saying you, but all of us together. Sinners in community with one another. And God has designed our community to be for the spread of the gospel. Is your small group leading people to Christ? And if not, we have missed the point. You say, well, we just want to care for one another. When we care for one another in a good, biblical, authentic way, it'll speak volumes to those who don't know Christ. And we'll show what the gospel looks like in action and as we proclaim the gospel. And people will be coming to Christ. Every small group in the church doing that. And then ultimately, this is the picture. Every member of the church. This is my prayer for every member of the church at Brook Hills. Every member of the church multiplying the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is the design of the Holy Spirit for your life. No Christian in this room is intended to coast or to sit on the sidelines in this mission. No Christian intended to be on the sidelines. Every follower of Christ, your life is created to multiply the gospel. 
and it looks different in all of our lives, the different contexts where we live and settings where we are, but what happens when we're all multiplying the gospel? The gates of hell cannot stop the advancement of this kingdom to the ends of the earth. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And I want to lead us in, in a confession of these realities, that we are witnesses of Christ. And so much like, much like last week, we had time where we corporately prayed together. This is going to be a little more responsive, a little more back and forth. And so you will see on the screen in a second a, a line that I'll read, and then it'll say church, and then church you read, and then there'll be a line occasionally that says everyone. And together we're going to confess this, and then we're going to sing, and then we'll, we'll close our time together tonight. So let me invite you to confess what we believe and who we are as the company of the redeemed together. Lord God, you have chosen us from out of the world. You have commanded us to love one another as you have loved us and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And to be your witnesses to the end of the earth. So we are witnesses of your eternal existence from before the beginning to after the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. We are witnesses of your creation, which you found to be very good. We are witnesses of the fallen state of humankind, resulting from the sin of Adam and the sin in our own lives. We are witnesses of your law given to expose our sin and to exalt your righteousness. We are witnesses of your prophets calling your people to repentance and telling of your salvation to come. We are witnesses of our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. We are witnesses of his virgin birth and perfect life. We are witnesses of his love, grace, and mercy. We are witnesses of his compassion, justice, and righteous indignation. We are witnesses of his betrayal, arrest, and trial. We are witnesses of his death on a cross. We are witnesses of his burial in a rich man's tomb. We are witnesses of his resurrection on the third day. We are witnesses of his ascension to take his place at your right hand. We are witnesses of the redemption and reconciliation now made available to us through his sacrifice. We are witnesses of our salvation by grace through faith. We are witnesses of the justification you have reckoned to us. We are witnesses of the sanctification you are enacting in us. We are witnesses by the power of your Holy Spirit indwelling us. We are witnesses of what your spirit speaks on your behalf. We are witnesses where your spirit leads according to your will. We are witnesses here and we are witnesses there. We are witnesses among our people and among all peoples. We are witnesses to every language. We are witnesses to every nation. 
We are witnesses to your glory and honor and praise, Lord God, forever and ever. Amen.